You're listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Parat. In today's topic, we are talking about ventilator-associated pneumonia. The world can be prone to understatement. I remember when the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer got caught and he said, I really messed up this time. And along those lines, I would say an understatement is that we are not particularly great at identifying both clinically and for surveillance purposes what that ventilator-associated pneumonia is in terms of both having definitions that have good specificity and sensitivity. And I think it's also more than fair to say that there has been a lot of variability on how individual hospitals report conditions like VAP or VAC, ventilator-associated conditions. So controversy and accuracy regarding when someone truly has a ventilator-associated pneumonia is probably beyond the scope of my discussion on this topic, but prevention still can be addressed. So the timing for talking about ventilator-associated pneumonia couldn't be much better because it was just released in August of 2014, the update on the guidelines for preventing ventilator-associated pneumonias, and that was printed in the journal called Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology. And these guidelines are backed by the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, as well as the Infectious Disease Society of America, and the American Hospital Association, among others. And right off the bat in these guidelines, they admit that the true incidence of VAP is very difficult because it's been somewhat subjective and nonspecific. And I think what they mean by that is that whether you're looking at different studies and the studies use different definitions of what a ventilator-associated pneumonia has been, or maybe how your infection preventionist or whoever's looking at the data at your hospital interprets some of these definitions or just the signs and symptoms of a ventilator-associated condition or pneumonia, how much we rely on the physician at the bedside, whether it's a critical care doc or hospitalist who says, yes, I think this is a pneumonia, or no, I don't think it's a pneumonia, which often has a lot to do with their threshold for starting antibiotics or not starting antibiotics. And therefore, how often a ventilator-associated pneumonia occurs can be all over the place. You know, a lot of studies and review articles say that 10 to 20% of patients who are on a ventilator for greater than 48 hours will develop a ventilator-associated pneumonia. And at the same time, there's a lot of hospitals out there claiming they haven't had a ventilator-associated pneumonia in a year or two. And so while definitions are evolving, and I don't think will be the same five or ten years from now from what they are today, we probably have to go through the painful definition process of what we're talking about. So there's VACs, ventilator-associated conditions. There's IVACs, which are infection-related ventilator-association complications. And then there's VAP, ventilator-associated pneumonia. And these definitions build on each other, so you really can't define a ventilator-associated pneumonia without first defining what a VAC and an IVAC is. While subject to change, a VAC, a ventilator-associated condition, 
is defined by greater than or equal to two days of stable or decreasing PEEP and oxygenation, which is then followed by an increase in the needs of PEEP and oxygenation that lasts for greater than or equal to two calendar days. If the patient's ventilator requirements stabilize for two days and then get worse, basically you've got a VAC. Building on that, there's the infection-related ventilator-associated complications, which we call an IVAC. And an IVAC is basically a VAC, a ventilator-associated condition, with possible possible infection indicators. And those infection indicators include fever above 38 degrees or a temperature that falls below 36 degrees, white blood cell counts that climb above 12,000 or drop below 4,000. Also included in the definition of an IVAC is the physician or provider starts one or more new antibiotics and continues that antibiotics for equal or greater than four days. And that's where some of that subjectivity comes in because some physicians start antibiotics at the drop of a hat where others don't. And with ventilator-associated infections having a high mortality, one of the most important pieces is that if you start antibiotics early, you will decrease that mortality. On the other hand, if you start them too early, you're probably going to increase infections like Clostridium difficile, other antibiotic-resistant problems. In some patients that really never had a ventilator-associated infection or pneumonia for that matter. So there will be that catch-22 of not starting antibiotics early enough and some people starting them too early when there really wasn't an infection. Okay, now that we've discussed IVAX, these infection-related ventilator-associated complications, we can now define what a VAP, a ventilator-associated pneumonia, is. And that is defined as a patient who has an IVAC who also has gram stain evidence of purulent pulmonary secretions or a pathogenic pulmonary culture. Again, I think we can find holes in these definitions, and I do think they will evolve. So let's just move on to the summary of recommendations for preventing ventilator-associated pneumonias. The August 2014 summary of recommendations and guidelines break down the evidence into those that have high-quality evidence, moderate evidence, and low-quality evidence. And the things that you consider high-quality evidence to prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia and also, therefore, decrease the duration on a ventilator as far as the number of days and also decrease mortality and improve costs is they say, one, don't intubate if you don't need to. Use non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in selected populations. They also say to interrupt sedation daily. And while you're at it, perform spontaneous breathing trials with the sedatives turned off. you got to assess readiness for extubation daily. And then there's an item that probably doesn't live in the physician world and more lives in the respiratory therapist world, which is change the ventilator circuit only if visibly soiled or malfunctioning.
And by that, they mean that changing the ventilator circuit on a fixed schedule does not impact ventilator-associated pneumonias. And therefore, the recommendation is to change it when it's visibly soiled or malfunctioning. So those are the VAP preventions that have high quality of evidence. What are the ones that have moderate evidence? Those are trying to manage patients without sedation whenever possible. We said it's high quality evidence to use an interruption of sedation once a day, but they're also saying there's some moderate evidence that just in general try to not use sedatives when you can get away with it. Obviously, discomfort and pain is how you have to balance that one. But they say that if you're going to be using sedatives to try and avoid benzodiazepines as much as possible and therefore use reassurance, antipsychotics, and also analgesics if pain is the issue. Another intervention with a moderate degree of quality evidence behind it is maintaining and improving physical conditioning and therefore we want to facilitate early mobility so those PTs and OTs in the ICU are really important as well as nursing interventions to help the patient work on some daily exercises. And then there is a recommendation to utilize endotracheal tubes with subglottic secretion drainage ports for patients who are expected to require more than 48 hours of mechanical ventilation. Obviously, identifying who those patients are can be challenging as we don't always know who's going to be requiring prolonged ventilation and who isn't. And then we come to the intervention that is recommended, but they admit that there's low quality of evidence for it. And I was a little bit surprised by that. And that is elevation of the head of the bed to 30 to 45 degrees. And the reason I was surprised that they consider it a low quality of evidence is that we have known for decades, meaning there was a study in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 1992, and the title of that study was Pulmonary Aspiration of Gastric Contents in Patients Receiving Mechanical Ventilation, the Effect of Body Position. And the results basically showed that supine position and length of time the patient is kept in that position are risk factors for aspiration of gastric contents. This was followed by another study in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in 1995 that was titled Semi-Recumbent Position Protects from Pulmonary Aspiration but Not Completely from Gastroesophageal Reflux in Mechanically Ventilated Patients. And while those studies don't definitively address developing a pneumonia on a ventilator, you would just think that having less aspiration would result in less pneumonia. And the authors of the guidelines specifically addressed that, saying when they looked at the trials, there were three randomized controlled trials. And one trial reported a 76% reduction in ventilator-associated pneumonia rates, whereas the other two found no difference in ventilator-associated pneumonia rates when they elevated the head of the bed. And so you know what's coming next, which is meta-analysis. And that was done, and that was in the Journal of Critical Care in 2009, and that meta-analysis was titled, Impact of Patient Position on the Incidence of Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. And... What that meta-analysis did find is that when you pool those three studies, 
it did have a significant impact on ventilator-associated pneumonia. It's an easy-to-do, no-cost intervention, and it is recommended in the guidelines. Many of us suspect that those patients getting enteral feedings are particularly at high risk for aspiration, and those are the ones that really need to have the head of the bed elevated. And therefore, we suspect that if we were to tease out the population getting tube feeds in an intensive care unit on a ventilator, which is a lot of people, this intervention would be potentially very important. So those are the basic practices that should be in a VAP bundle. And now we can talk a little bit about interventions that may still lower ventilator-associated pneumonia rates, but for which there's insufficient data. And so what the guidelines say is there's just not enough data at the present time to determine their impact on duration of mechanical ventilation, length of stay, and mortality, but may have a important positive impact for these patients. And the authors of the guideline point out that performing oral care with chlorhexidine seems to have some moderate evidence behind it. I'm just going to read straight from the guidelines on this one so there's no confusion. They say that oral care with chlorhexidine has been studied in at least 16 randomized controlled trials and nine meta-analysis to date. The benefits of oral care with chlorhexidine appear to be most pronounced in preventing post-operative respiratory tract infection in cardiac surgery patients. The data for non-cardiac surgery patients are more equivocal. So again, that's straight from the guidelines, and therefore it seems that we should be doing chlorhexidine oral care for cardiac surgery patients, probably should be doing it for all patients on a ventilator. And then the important point that the authors state is that, you know, we're just talking about ventilator-associated pneumonia prevention, but there may be other really good reasons to do chlorhexidine oral mouth care, and that includes dental reasons. If we can avoid tooth and gum disease, that may be very important to the patient as well. In fact, there is also a recommendation with low-quality evidence that mechanical toothbrushing may lower VAP rates. And while talking about special approaches that may lower VAP rates but not necessarily have to be part of every bundle is saline installation before tracheal suctioning. There's felt to be some low-quality evidence that that may help. So I think that's a relatively good summary of the interventions and recommendations from the guidelines in prevention of VAP. I do refer you to the guidelines itself if you want to get deeper into this because they do address other interventions, most of which don't work or at least to date haven't shown tremendous benefit. And those include silver-coated endotracheal tubes, kinetic beds, prone positioning, early TPN, stress ulcer prophylaxis, early tracheotomy. There is probably more to come on those as more studies are done. I also do want to emphasize that I have been particularly focusing solely on adult patients. So there are guidelines for pediatrics and neonates and the interventions, and also the quality of the evidence based on the pediatric and neonate literature differs from the adult patient literature. I think one of the things that there will definitely be more to come on is decontamination of the oral pharynx or the entire digestive tract with antibiotics, because while that may ultimately decrease ventilator-associated pneumonia rates, 
What we don't want to do is trade off infections, meaning we don't want to give our patients C. diff just for the sake of lowering ventilator-associated pneumonia. And likewise, we don't want to build resistance and give them a pseudomonas infection that's untreatable. And therefore, we can't just look at it in a vacuum of just purely looking at ventilator-associated pneumonia rates. We need to have long-term studies on what decontaminating an entire digestive tract will do to a patient over months. So coming back in the next lecture, we'll talk about ventilator-associated pneumonia treatment and leave this lecture to just the prevention strategies. Thanks for tuning in to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. See you next time.